was the J Cut and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. Good evening, good morning, good noon, wherever you're listening. Uh, my name is Andreas. I'm one of the co-hosts here at the K Cut. I am the creator and uh, one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love art house cinema, international cinema, and a little bit of everything in between. Uh, who else do I have with me? James here, a content creator. I produce and release music under the Alias Boutique Paul. One half of the Preferred to Say podcast. Uh, I've written a few articles for Films Fatale in the past. Uh, my main expertise is no budget film. And yeah, I'm just trying to hammer through these Oscar noms. I got 19 flicks left. We believe in you. Well, anyway, I'm Rachel, and I am obsessed with the golden age of Hollywood. And one of the reasons why is because they have really big, splashy romances that are really fun to watch. And so I was thinking about it, and Valentine's Day was, of course, this week, and we haven't really done an episode about couples on and off screen, so that is exactly what we're going to do. In the first half, we'll talk about romantic movies that stuck with us for one reason or another, and then we'll talk about real-life power couples or interesting couples or anything like that in Hollywood. Or other countries of film, of course. That sounds good to me. As long as motion pictures have been a medium, romance has been one of the most coveted genres that there is. Even back when they weren't necessarily telling stories, they were like five to ten seconds long. One of the earliest films is, of course, I believe it's called The Kiss. And um, yeah, people just love being in love, seeing love, reciprocating love. So this should be a very exciting episode, and it doesn't have to be tethered to Valentine's Day because, you know, it's good to love people throughout the year. So I'm very excited to get into this. Same here. You might say my heart is beating with anticipation. All righty. Well, do you want to do you want to go first then? Because it sounds like you're, you're ready to go with your pick for... Uh, I believe we're starting off with... Our, uh, at least one of our favorite romance films, correct? Uh, that is correct. So um, that could be any type of romance, any era, any country. But I settled on my favorite, which was the golden age of Hollywood. There's been a lot of discourse lately on Twitter about what is permissible in film and what kind of boundaries should be in place for problematic content. And a lot of stuff has been floating around about people wanting to bring back the Hayes Code. I, this was the censorship in Hollywood in the roughly 1930s to 1960s. Um, I don't think anybody's seriously touting it, but you know how things get out of hand on Twitter. And anyway, that got me thinking about the film Notorious, which stars Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, and obviously Claude Rains, one of Hollywood's best supporting actors. And it was Hitchcock's most passionate movie, I would argue, because the chemistry between Bergman and Grant was just leaping off the screen even when the parts of the movie where she's married to another character you believe nothing will tear them apart and to show how passionately over the top in love they were and physically attracted to like the movie is about as sexy as hollywood could be back then hitchcock had to figure out how to get around the Hayes code all these really tough restrictions about what they could show with romance and love and sex on screen so I won't spoil exactly how they did it, but it was very clever, and film fans who've read up on it will already know. That is such a good pick, because a lot of people who aren't super-duper familiar with Hitchcock would be like, this guy writing a, you know, like a legitimate romance or like, you know, chemistry between people? Yeah, if you watch stuff like North by Northwest, um, yeah, he's really good at p- depicting people in love, like in uh, Rear Window, but... 
Uh, the instance you bring up is so good because it's not just atypical for Hitchcock or thrillers. It's also atypical for films noir where it's like a legitimate romance where, you know, there's like me, you know, you're questioning, is there something beh- behind these motives or uh, is everybody actually in love here? You always get a sense that there's somebody deceiving somebody else in a film noir because of the vantage point, you know, you're following it from one perspective and let's be honest here, it was usually the femme fatale. So that would usually be the male protagonist downfall, which in and of itself is, let's be honest, a little dated as an idea, but in notorious, it's like, honestly, you don't really know where you stand when it comes to this relationship. And it's as mysterious as the film itself is, but in a whole completely different way. So it's like you're, you're experiencing two different types of, you know, ambiguous timelines at the exact same time. Yeah, and like Bergman and Grant really tap into their dark sides, which they very much did not back in 1946. So I would say it's worth a look for anyone who likes that romance but wants a bit of a twist. Yeah, either on this topic or even in the grand scheme of things when it comes to Hitchcock, off the top of my head, I haven't really like scrutinized this. I'm just blurting it out now. Could be a top five Hitchcock. It's really that good. Uh, I would say go check it out. I couldn't agree more with that. For mine, it's uh, a little bit on the nose, but like I was thinking of so many other examples where it's like, you know, I love some big grandiose epics or some uh, more abstract things like La Jetée comes to mind, or even the occasional rom-com or romantic comedy drama. But I'm, I don't know if this is my favorite romance of all time, but it's, Definitely one of my favorites, and it's the one that sticks out of my mind the most when this question comes up, because I love what was achieved when it comes to breaking the mold of what a romance could look like. And again, it's on the nose, I apologize, but I feel like this film is aged beautifully. It's um, Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, obviously written by Charlie Kaufman, starring uh, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet in what I would consider two career-defining performances. And what I love about this one so much, and again, I feel like it's so on the nose because so many people would point this out, but I think for good reason, um, it breaks down what love is, you know, when it comes to like the grasping onto memories of when a relationship was at its best, when times are hard, um, this chemical reaction, how it is like this biological resonance as opposed to like, you know, this abstract idea Mm -hmm. that we all kind of like a door this this concept called love really it's just a chemical reaction um it breaks down all of these different things but at the same time kind of just says i've explained what this is in a whole plethora of ways but at the same time we are perfectly fine kind of indulging in this behavior and this idea so why don't we just do it we can acknowledge that it's not everything and anything but at the same time we could still just be happy that we have it because it makes life a lot better yeah, it's it's a splendid film and it's got so many moving parts and it's just so complex. It really doesn't give you any straightforward answers. So I find it interesting that we both picked really different takes on romance from the era and from what you'd typically think of American film. Yeah, because yours was like rebelling against yeah the Hayes Code with all of these rules set in place. But by the time Michel Gondry was making Eternal Sunshine, you know, the early 2000s, all of that stuff didn't apply whatsoever. Like we were so beyond that, that it's like, okay, all the rules have been broken when it comes to like this moral compass that we were supposed to have. 
what rules can we break when it comes to just storytelling? Because we've explored so many decades of this stuff. And what you get is a film that takes place not in the future necessarily, but like during our, our timeline or during our time period, but in a separate timeline where you have this uh, technology. I think it's called LunaCore. It's the company, this fictitious company, where you can erase your mind completely of an individual person or persons. So you don't remember that they've ever existed. And in this film, Kate Woods' character, Clementine, I believe is her name. Uh, I keep wanting to call her Tangerine because that's what Elijah Wood calls her, I think, right? So uh, <laughs> I think it's Clementine. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, Yes, it is Clementine, because I almost got named Clementine, so it was stuck in my head. Oh, well, there you go. Um, as long as they don't sing that Huckleberry Hound song, right? Uh, <laughs> like they do in the sh- in the film. Um, Clementine rids her mind of, I think his name is Joel Barish, her, yes, her, her ex-boyfriend. Joel. Yeah, her ex-boyfriend, uh, Jim Carrey's character. And it's this idea of... At first, he's trying to like get back into her life, but that's just not possible. So he decides he wants to rid his own mind of her. So one of the storylines is we're actually inside of Joel's mind while it's erasing things. And it goes backwards in time from the last memory that he has with Clementine to the very first. So he's like slowly realizing he doesn't actually want to get rid of her. And it's like the most depressing thing. And meanwhile, in the real world, outside of that, the um, scientists working on him have their own interesting little subplot, which I really won't spoil if you haven't seen the film. Um, just Charlie Kaufman's my all-time favorite writer. So this this was a no-brainer for me. No pun intended. Well, it's an excellent choice. And again, I think it's one any film fan should see just because of its rather skewed take on things. James, what about you? Uh, what romance film are you are you um, selecting? Something a little bit more cheerful, or are you also going to be in in the dark corridors of the romantic film with us? Please pick the bride of Sergeant Kabuki Man. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever live down that that pick of Sergeant Kabuki Man. Nope, I, I'm keeping it a little bit darker, just like the rest of you. Uh, I decided to go with Kevin Smith's Chasing Amy. Yes, primarily because I. I don't know if it's just like the current social landscape, but I think this film holds a lot of relevance these days, even more so than when the film came out. And that film came out in 97. But it's about a comic book artist paid by Ben Affleck, who falls in love with a lesbian played by Joey Lauren Adams. And then at a point in the movie, the feelings get reciprocated and they kind of start this relationship. But there's also the complications of Holden, who's Ben Affleck's character, he starts to hear stories of things from her past and then, you know, insecurity kind of gets the better of him. While also he has a his best friend in, uh, and creative partner played by Jason Lee, who is kind of he's being awkward about the whole thing and you can't really figure out why. And I'm not going to spoil it because it becomes obvious, but I'm not going to spoil it. So. Yeah, and then just obviously like tensions boil over towards the end and it's, you know, he he tries to come up with a solution that's it ends up being the, like definitely the wrong proposal, but it just kind of makes you think of, you know, it, it kind of was really ahead of its time as far as kind of what's going on currently where things kind of get obscured as far as like relationships and sexuality go. Yeah, I mean, just even as far as like how like re- f- friendships can kind of get obscured in this whole scheme of, you know, like what is real love. And to see something like that just kind of resonate, I mean, because we see it all the time. I mean, there's so much complication over relationships nowadays that it just seems like can anybody be normal 
Yeah, and I think also in this era, there's a heightened emphasis on determining your own, not just your identity in terms of sexual orientation, but sort of there's no set standard anymore. Whatever works best for you is probably going to be okay. And I think that Chasing Amy really tapped into that far ahead of when people were ready to hear it. And I think that's part of why it's a little less well-known today. Yeah, it was also, I mean, it's also kind of like, I think it's one of the ones that just doesn't get talked about as far as filmography goes, but it's probably one that has the most critical praise amongst like fans and critics alike. Mm-hmm. But it's also um, fascinating because he that was actually inspired by his real life relationship with Joey Lauren Adams because they dated like before the movie. Okay, I don't I don't know how long the relationship lasted. I think they might have been like during the making, but uh, he said like the whole insecurity part of the storyline comes from the fact that you know he's just some comic book nerd from new jersey who never really did much and you know he kind of looked at her life and all the things that she did all the traveling and all the stuff that she's done and it started to make him feel insecure even though it wasn't his place to be insecure because it's like you know that's her life and not his and it kind of makes you think of conversations on how, today on you know how guys can be really weird about like what a girl might have done in their life mm-hmm. even though you know it's like what does that have to do with the now Exactly. And there are a lot of people who can be really judgy about their partner's past or really anybody's past in general. And I think we're finally starting to move away from that, I hope. I feel like with every two steps forward, there's always going to be like one step backwards because you have like a lot of people who just refuse for that change to happen. I would be happy if it did because there's no point in shaming people for their romantic histories. Not that now that matters, isn't it? Enjoying the time that you have now. That's the way I see it. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up the fact that uh, Kevin Smith and the uh, lead actress actually dated in real life because I feel like there's a perfect segue to get into the second portion of this episode, which is what, dear Rachel? Oh, that's right. So we all know that when you're on a film set together and you're away from... Uh, uh, together with your film crew for a few months and you're working on these really intense roles, romance can blossom. So sometimes it's actors, sometimes it's behind the camera, sometimes it's one of each, but we know that there have been many, many Hollywood romances, some of which have led to some pretty cool things. So personally, I thought about the really big ones like Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart, Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn, obviously. But those are too easy. Um, they're too obvious. Everyone knows about them. So I decided to go with two people who, in terms of their relationship, mostly worked as writers, but we also know them well for other things. And those are Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan. Ooh, okay. That's a good pick. Most people will know Ruth Gordon for Rosemary's Baby and Harold and Maude, and she was a phenomenally successful actor. But um, she was also a very well-known screenwriter, nominated many times, and her husband, Garson Kanan, was frequently her writing partner. They both started out in the theater. Kanan was an actor who moved into directing and writing and did tons of work on Broadway. And then Gordon did tons and tons of acting and transitioned into writing as well, although she did keep up the acting. And yeah, um, they got together, I think, sometime in the 1930s and stayed married until her death. Um, and they were responsible for a lot of very witty comedies. So they did uh, Adam's Rib, Pat and Mike, 
Um, Ruth Gordon wrote a film. Uh, wait, cut that bit out. Um, sorry, they did Adams Red, Pat and Mike, and they also co-wrote A Double Life, which won an Academy Award for Ronald Col- Coleman, although that was less of a comedy. Um, so they had this really, really fruitful partnership and really huge careers on their own. But I just wanted to shout them out because I don't think they get very much attention for their writing skills, particularly Gordon. And fun fact, one of Garson Kanan's books actually inspired the series Smash, which was only made in 2012. Ooh, I actually didn't know quite a bit of that. That's very, uh, it's very enlightening stuff. I mean, it sounds like they accomplished quite a bit together. Yeah, and they were good friends with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, so I got to mention them too. Well, there you go. I think that's a that's a great pick, and I don't know how many people are too too aware of that one. I feel like they're going to be a little bit more aware of mine. Um, but if you're not, it just seems like such like a startling couple because it, it almost feels like you couldn't have two different like two more completely different people. But really, they were like perfect for each other, and uh, that. That couple is Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, which is just like one of my favorite like Hollywood romances ever. So um, Mel Brooks, yes, the funny man, responsible for a lot of really, really great films like uh, Blazing Saddles and Spaceballs and Young Frankenstein. And Anne Bancroft, who's known for being like a very trained classically experienced sort of sort of thespian. So how did this happen? Well, uh, in 1961, they met at a at a rehearsal for the Craft Music Hall Variety Show and quickly hit things off. And they were married in uh, 1964 until, uh, unfortunately, when Anne Bancroft died in the, uh, the mid-2000s. It was 2005 that she passed away. So that's a really long time together. And they even had a son together. They had Yeah, a- he never did anything good, right? Max Brooks, yeah. Gee, I don't know. You might have to look him up and find out for yourself. So, uh, yeah, uh, they were known for kind of pushing each other creatively. Uh, Not only did they work together kind of a little bit, so uh, Mel Brooks produced uh, a remake of To Be or Not To Be, which Anne Bancroft starred in. Uh, She also acted in Silent Movie, uh, created by Brooks. Uh, they also cameoed in two of the greatest shows of all time, uh, season six of The Simpsons and uh, Kirby Enthusiasm in the uh, season four finale when uh, Larry David starring in The Producers. Uh, so lots of uh, lots of that stuff going around. But again, it was more about um, the, the creative pushing. So Mel Brooks himself has credited and Bancroft for uh, – inspiring him to carry on and and work on the producers and young frankenstein which are two of his most coveted projects ever um the producers being the film i mean and uh she also you know being the great actress that she is having starred in the miracle worker and the graduate also starred in the elephant man which uh a lot of people don't realize this the david lynch film mel brooks actually produced but at its time he took his name off the poster because people would think that the elephant man was meant to be a comedy when it wasn't so um, between the two of them, Mel Brooks has an EGOT, so an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. And Anne Bancroft was a Grammy away, I think. She was very close, but she got the triple crown of acting. So powerhouse couple, such a 
brilliant couple and they achieve so much together and separately. Yeah. Um, when you consider that the two of them were in such different spheres and yet were at the very, very, very top of both of their careers, it's incredible. And again, they could not be more different, but once you see them together, it just works. It just makes perfect sense that they were meant for one another. And clearly it lasted. Yeah, again, until she passed away, unfortunately. But just th- that one, like when he asked this question and I did some like real digging, once I landed on this, I was like, yes, of course, this is one of my favorite couples in all of Hollywood. So there you go. Well, I think it's an absolutely excellent pick. And again, yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize they were married unless they're really big film fans. Again, because it just seems so like unlikely. Uh, James, what about you? Who did you select? So I had a, like a really hard time at first. I was like, what couple do I want to pick? Because I think there's like there's so many, but at the same time, it's like how many are noteworthy in the sense that they're like a creative force. So I decided to go with one that's a little bit newer. Uh, I decided to go with Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. Yes, power couple. That's a good one. It's almost like a perfect match. And I think it's just, especially when you see the work they do together, there's something about, especially when, like if he acts and stuff that, if she acts and stuff that he directs, there's something about the her personality that just fits his style of filmmaking. So when they work on things together, it's like, uh, this just feels right. Like the, I think the first thing I ever saw them that they did together was uh, Francis Ha, mm. which is a very good film. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, there's just something about there's just something about her presence that feels natural with his style of directing because it's like Noah Baumbach's very idiosyncratic. Like it, it, his movies like play out like they're a standard film, but there's so many nuances just to the way he directs. It's like you almost have to like you almost have to like pay attention to really get it. And anybody working with him has to be on his wavelength to a certain extent, and I think more so than most directors. Oh yeah, and then now you know they wrote Barbie together, which I'm super excited to see. Best movie of 2023, calling it now. Um, one year they were both nominated, Gerwig for Adapted Screenplay, Baumbach for Original Screenplay, and I was so hoping they would both win and bring one Oscar each home for their baby to play with. But uh, neither did, right? Unfortunately. Neither did, which is too bad. Yeah, uh, they actually, because um, they had met because she started in um, his film Greenberg, which was, uh, she started opposite uh, Ben Stiller. Right. I think they shot that in early 2010, and I think they started dating like late 2011. And uh, obviously he was, you know, prior to that, he was going through a divorce with Jennifer Jason Lee, which he, you know, kind of immortalized in marriage story because, you know, it's funny. People are saying, yeah, there's almost like a genre of film. It's, uh, you know, w- when the <laughs> when the director gets divorced and they start listing, they start, I can't remember what films they, but they started listing all these films and it's like, yeah, there's this like rampant cynicism in like the very next film a director does after they get divorced. Or shortly afterwards, so like her and Lost in Translation came from the same divorce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, it's uh, funny because they actually have a, um, like, it wasn't, they're not connected to it in any way, but they had an unintentional mutual collaborator because uh, Greta Gerwig first became notable for starring in uh, two films by Mumblecore director Joe Swanberg. And I think it was like 2009 or 2010, Noah Baumbach was a producer on one of his films later. So I I just thought that was fun because Six Degrees of Separation is always fun like that. Yeah, I'm always fascinated with people who are like super creative and they get together because it's almost unfair. It's like you're both creative geniuses. How did you find each other? And then there's all the pressure to create really cool works of art. I mean, look at Rooney Mara and Joaquin Phoenix who met on her, which Andreas just mentioned. Now they're a couple and they've worked together several times. 
that's I think that's a great one to end on because uh, we all know because we follow the Oscars here uh, for better or for worse. We all know that Lucky Phoenix doesn't really care about these types of award shows. But when he was winning them every single time, Rooney Mara was there to cheer him on, and she just looks like he looked like he didn't really care. He was happy for like the podium to be able to speak about his late brother River and other important causes. But every single time Rooney was just like beaming because she was so proud of him. And oh, that made it all worth it. Just all my heart. Yeah. So I guess it's true. Love can thrive in Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, if you want the the final, the the final piece of that, of that puzzle, you've got a benefer, which didn't work, but now it's working again. So, Hey, you never know. (laughs) Maybe second time. That was a plot twist. I wasn't ready for And there was (laughs) another benefer in between. Oh, that's that's true because yeah, I forgot that Jennifer Garner is also a Jennifer, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I guess I guess he's got a type, uh, Jennifer's. So, um, there you have it. So, uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the K Cut. If you would like to listen to some more, uh, where can our listeners find us? We are on every major podcasting platform, and you can follow our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we are doing Cinematic Smorgasbord this month, as usual. Our collective film is She Dies Tomorrow. And then our individual films are Inherit the Wind, A Woman Under the Influence, and Dream by Kim Ki-duk. Fantastic. Well, we all look forward to watching those, and you should as well. But before we send you off, I know we've already given you like three films plus this additional four. We like to recommend even more films because that's what cinephiles do. We love adding to our list of to watch or we love adding to our list of films to watch. So uh, we're going to do our random weekly recommendations and uh, we could even go in the same order. Uh, Rachel, what is your random weekly recommendation? Well, I've been going on and on about Garson Kane and Ruth Gordon. So obviously Go watch Adam's Rib. It's so clever. There's a lot of passion and chemistry on and off the screen and uh, tons of great supporting performances. So if you're looking for laughs, go see that. That is a great film. I saw that a couple of years ago for the first time. It's a terrific film. Um, I'm going to kind of cheat a little bit, uh, but quickly bring up both. Um, when I was, when it came to this question, they're both films that I believe I brought up a lot of times on this pod. So that's why I tried to refrain, but one of my favorite romantic dramas is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai, who I bring up too often on this pod, but also not often enough. And uh, favorite film. Oh, it's, yeah, I own three copies of it. I mean, I've got a problem. And um, my favorite rom-com, if you can call it this, is Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, which is just so beautiful, but hilarious at the same time. All right. All right, I guess I'm up. Uh, you know what? I'm going to do a callback to a an earlier smorgasbord assignment that I gave Andreas. I'm going to go with four ad monsters. Oh yeah. By filmmakers, Aaron Crumley and Susan Bice. And it's a film that is based on their real life relationship, which started on the internet and they wanted to continue that. So they would only communicate through creative means. It's a really fantastic watch. Also, if you ever can get a copy of it on DVD, they, they include like a making of series and it just, it's it's wild all the drama that happened behind the scenes. And that was a very early recommendation, if I recall. Oh yeah, that was like I think maybe I don't remember when, but it was some earlier in the first year of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I forgot that even existed until he brought it up. I was like, Oh yeah, foreign monsters. It's it's been a while since yeah, it's been a minute. Well, 
Thank you so much for listening. That was the K-Cut. Tune in next week. We'll have some more movie-loving discussions uh, that await your ears. Uh, that was the K-Cut. We're now going into the L-Cut. Mm-hmm.